ton of great things going on around here, and we have made a conscious choice not to um, do announcements like we have in the past, and the only way you're going to keep up with what's going on is if you get into the bulletin. Um, everything's there. Today is the last day you can sign up for the retreats, so if you're going to the men's retreat or you're going to the women's retreat, uh, please let us know today. Stop at the kiosk. Hate for you to miss out on what God is doing there. Um, so it's pretty straightforward. Hey, a lot of you have been asking me what's next after the Curtain series, and so starting Easter Sunday, which will be here before you know it, we're going to launch a series called He Is, I Am, and it is going to be a walk through the book of Ephesians. This will be a great series for you to invite your friends to. Um, we're just going to take a pretty uh, methodical look at who God is and what that means um, to you and I. So I want you to be a part of that series. So we're in week six of A Church Without Curtains. If you're using your Church Without Curtains book, we're on page 85. If you're not, um, there is a sheet in your bulletin to take notes. We want to encourage you to be taking notes. Uh, encourage you to bring your Bibles, whatever you use at home as a reader. If you're an electronic Bible person, make sure you have that in front of you. Be reading along as we walk through uh, each of the sermons. It's just a great way for you to retain a lot more of what God has for you. Hey, last year um, I read a book. Um, that's an accomplishment. You should clap for that. Last year I read a book. I didn't, I didn't mean that so definitively. I actually read more than one last year, but I read one particular book called um, A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Can we turn me down just a little bit? It's a little echoey up here. So Viktor is a psychiatrist, um, and he was uh, imprisoned in the Nazi death camps. And the premise of his book is, and while we have to be careful not to compare our suffering to to people who went through the Holocaust, but what he's basically saying is that everyone experiences suffering. And how you respond to the suffering in your life really defines the direction of your life, defines how you... I love one of the phrases he says more than once is that we have an opportunity in our lives to turn tragedy into triumph. And there is, in this book, um, the reason I bring it up, there's this image that he paints as he uh, goes through the book that that has been implanted in my mind. It's an image that I cannot shake. Uh, and the image haunts me as a pastor and a leader in the church. Uh, and the image really reminds me of the gravity of the calling that we have at Grace Community Church and as followers of Christ. So Victor describes in really bone-chilling detail the horrors of life in the death camp. It's, it's hard to read. Uh, Meg and I just finished watching a documentary on World War II, and when we got near the end of the documentary and the liberation was coming, they had lots of live footage of uh, the, the death camps, and you, I found myself wanting to turn away from the TV and not want to see those images because it was so horrific. And the horrors of the death camp are pretty sobering and touch me deeply, but that's not what haunts me. Victor describes the day of liberation when the Allied forces showed up. It says, upon the arrival of the Allied forces in the Red Cross, it was clear the prisoners were going to be liberated. Freedom was finally in their grasp. Every day in captivity, these prisoners had entertained thoughts of freedom. Every night they had dreamed of freedom, and now they were actually free. But some of the men came out of the barracks and wandered outside of the gates of the camp, outside of the, the fence that had held them in, into nearby fields. And he said they picked flowers and just held flowers in their hands and observed the flowers and listened to the birds singing and began to grasp the reality of their freedom. They began to live into the freedom that was now theirs. But Frank 
tells of other people, and this is the image that haunts me. He said, there were men who came out of those putrid barracks and heard the news of freedom and turned around and walked back in. Unable to comprehend or believe or have hope, these men had become so accustomed to being slaves, to being prisoners, that they couldn't grasp the freedom that was in front of them. Both of these groups of men experienced freedom. Everything was available to both groups, but only one group began to live into the freedom that they had. And the reason the image haunts me is because I believe it's a picture of our journey with Jesus. I believe that we struggle to walk in the freedom that is afforded to us. That we struggle to realize the enormous cost that Jesus paid on the cross to give us total, absolute freedom. And because we don't comprehend all that we have, we turn and we walk back into our old lives. We walk back into our own prisons. And so today I want to talk about freedom. What does freedom really mean? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? Do we really have the freedom that, that, that I'm talking about? Is freedom really available? At the start of Jesus' public ministry, he quotes Isaiah 61.1, and he quotes this passage kind of as his personal mission statement. And he says these words. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when you look at this passage, it's hard to miss and, 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 and hard to, to, to overlook the declaration of freedom. Jesus says, God sent me to proclaim, to preach, to announce that freedom's available for everybody. I have actually come to set the oppressed free. Isaiah wrote those words 600 to 700 years before Jesus stood up in the temple, opened the scrolls, and read them. And what I want to do this morning is I want to go back and I want to look at Isaiah's writing, and I want to kind of see the rich language. So grab your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah 61, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. And we're going to put this passage into context. I want you to see the rich language that Isaiah uses. I want you to, to really get a grasp for all that's being offered to you and, I, you and I. So Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. We're going to discover together the ramifications of this amazing proclamation. Isaiah writes these words. He says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our Lord, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair." They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for display of his splendor. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for uh, this morning. I thank you for uh, just the excitement that you've given me throughout the week as I've thought about freedom. Lord, I pray today that we would be like those men walking in the field, uh, taking hold of the freedom that you've given us. There is this picture of actually 
taking hold of, of what you have done for us. And I think of even when Stacy talked and, and that idea that we have freedom, but are we walking in the freedom that we have? Lord, I pray that, that as we unpack this passage from Isaiah, that you would allow us to grasp and live into the amazing freedom uh, that your son Jesus has made available to us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So Isaiah starts with these words. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. And the reality is, is there's kind of a double meaning here. Because the truth is, Isaiah is saying, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, Isaiah, to preach the good news, to proclaim something that's about to happen. So, so the passage applies to Isaiah, but we also know, because Jesus stood up in the temple and read it as his personal image statement, that the passage also applies to Jesus. The reality is that, that God called Isaiah to a particular time and a particular place to have a particular message about freedom for the people. In the same way, God sent his only begotten son and gave him a message of freedom. So this passage applies to both people. So when you say the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, it's upon Isaiah, and it's also upon Jesus. And we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about what this means for us, what Jesus was saying when he said the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So he says the Spirit of the Lord means to preach, to proclaim, to announce. Look at the second part of verse 1. Good news to the poor. This announcement is good news to the poor. Some of your translations, if you have something different than the NIV, may say, instead of poor, it may say humble, or it may say meek. Think about this, poor, meek, humble. They seem very different when you think about it, but what it's referring to is an, an inner disposition, something that's going on inside of a person. If a person is, is poor, meek, or humble, it's a description of someone who knows that they are in need of God. To be poor in spirit is to know that something's not right inside of me. Something is amiss. I'm missing something that I need. There's, there's, a, there's something out there that's going to help me. I can't do this on my own. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of being absolutely aware that you have a, a need for God. It's a description of being what we call broken before God. So being poor, humble, and meek is maybe better understood if we talk about the opposite. So the opposite of being poor, humble, and meek would be to be haughty or proud. And if you read through the scriptures, God talks a lot about being haughty or proud. And to be haughty or proud just basically means I can do this on my own. I don't need God. So a statement you may hear from somebody who's haughty or proud is that, well, well Christianity is for the weak. It's just a crutch for those who can't get through life on their own. So that's, that's a, a haughty or proud. So there's this picture that, that Jesus is painting saying, look, I have good news for anyone who knows they need good news. If you know you have a need for God, if you know you have a, a need for God to do something in your life, I have good news for you. If you're proud, if you're haughty, if you think you can do this on your own, then the news is going to be missed for you. So what is the good news? Let's keep reading. It says, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And this is an amazing promise. Because what makes it amazing is, is it, it, it's for every type of brokenhearted. It's for every person who has hurt in their inner spirit. So, so one of the things I read this week that really just kind of got my, me thinking about this, it said, um, brokenness is the beginning of healing. And we don't often think that way. We don't often think about the fact that when we are broken, that's when our opportunity to really receive what God has for us begins. Because it's in our brokenness that we recognize our need for God. 
It's in our deep pain that we recognize something else needs to be a part of my life. It's, it's in our brokenness that we actually find out that we need one another. There is this picture of brokenness being the beginning of something amazing. So the, what about the broken heart? So what I want to do is just think about like the different ways our hearts are broken. Sometimes our hearts are broken because of sin that we've committed. Sometimes we are just broken because we know we have fallen short. We know that we've inflicted pain on other people. We know that we've, we've not done what God has told us to do or, or we've done things that we knew we weren't supposed to do. And so there's this deep ache in our spirit because we just know we've done bad things. And so sometimes that's where our broken heart is. But sometimes your heart is broken because somebody did bad things to you. So some of you were abused. Some of you were raged upon. Some of you were, were abandoned. Some of you, some, some, somewhere along the way, somebody really sinned against you and created a great deal of hurt in your spirit. Somebody took something that belonged to you or, or took something that was dear to you. And so in that, there's a broken heart as well. Sometimes our hearts are broken because of what we did. Sometimes it's broken because of something somebody else did. And sometimes our hearts are broken because we live in a fallen world. Because people still die. And people still get cancer. And moms still have miscarriages. And the, the weight of life happens. And our, our hearts are broken. So regardless of where the, the broken heart comes from, there's this beautiful picture of, of Jesus saying, I have come to mend your broken heart. If you know your heart is broken, I am here to bring healing and binding to your broken heart. I have good news. If you know you're hurting, I can step into that hurt. Jesus stands up in the temple and he proclaims, this is the reason I came, to heal the brokenhearted. Being brokenhearted and turning to God is the beginning of the process of mending, of living into the freedom that God has for us. And if healing our broken hearts wasn't enough, he goes on to say, keep looking at the passage, says, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness the prisoners. The problem is we don't often know that we're captive. The problem is sometimes we don't realize those areas in our lives where we are still being held prisoner. So to be captive is to be ensnared, held down, unable to move freely, held back, blocked. Sometimes we use the word blocked. Let me ask you something. What is that thing that keeps tripping you up? What is the thing that, that entangles you, that, that keeps you from moving forward? I know it's not easy, it's not popular, it's, maybe it's not politically correct to say this, but the reality is we all have that. Somewhere in our lives, there's still something that's entangling us, holding us back, keeping us from experiencing all the freedom that God has for us. There's something that still gets in the way. We all have curtains. We all have things that en ensnare us, entangle us. The problem is we kind of accept them just as part of who we are. And like those guys at the, in the prison camp, we, we turn around and we walk back into the barracks and don't experience the freedom that God has given to us. Jesus says, I, I came to set you free. Free from sin, free from bitterness, free from unforgiveness, free from anger, addiction, fear, worry. Anything that entangles and snares holds you back from getting everything God wants you to have. He says, no, I, I came to set you free from that. You have total and absolute freedom from that. 
The passage says, if you look at it, it says, I came to release from darkness for the prisoners. The actual literal translation that it says, to take prisoners into the light. I love that. Jesus says, I just want to pull back the curtain. And I want to let the, the healing freedom light shine in the darkness. Did you ever think about the fact that when, when somebody suffers from depression, that it's often described as a blanket of darkness? Like, if you really have a conversation with somebody who's really sad or depressed, they describe feeling darkness. And Jesus says, no, I want to take you out of the darkness, and I want to bring you into the light and set you free from that oppression, free from that feeling of sadness. Amen is right. Let's keep looking at verse 2. He says, Jesus continues, and he says, I came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is the year of the Lord's favor? Well, what we know is it's not 12 months. So like when we think of a year, we think 12 months, it's a calendar year, and that's not at all what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is, I have come to usher in a new era, a new season of time. The new era was made evident when Jesus was on the cross, and he gave up his last breath, and in that moment, the veil in the temple, which represented separation between God and man, was torn from top to bottom, from heaven to hell. And a new era was introduced. A new time in, in human history was made available where God was available to you and I, where we could walk up to the, the throne of God, where we could have access to God. Another translation for, for the year of the Lord's favor is just the year of reconciliation. It is now a season or a time where we are reconciled to God. So there's this amazing proclamation that Jesus is making. I have come to set you free from sin free from death, free from guilt, condemnation, worry, shame, unforgiveness, addictions, inadequacy, depression. The list goes on and on. I have come to set you free, and the freedom that I'm offering you is all-encompassing. It's freedom from all of this. But the thing is, we have to learn to walk into the freedom that we have. We have to learn to walk outside of the gates and take hold of the freedom that God has given us. We can't walk back into the barracks and walk back into our old lives. This is the life-changing proclamation. But then when you're in Isaiah, Isaiah goes on and he, he begins to paint this picture of using this amazing illustration. So starting in verse 3, there's this, there's this word picture that, that Isaiah is painting. And the, the problem is, if, if you were in Isaiah's time and you read this, it would have made perfect sense to you. It would have been absolutely clear what Isaiah is saying, but because we don't understand the culture, because we don't understand really the imagery that he's painting, the, the, the beauty of the illustration is sort of lost on you and I. We read it, and it's really cool words, and it sounds poetic, but we don't get all of what God is saying. So in an effort to help you understand what Isaiah is writing in, the, in that section in, in verse 3, I want to tell you a, a familiar story. I want to take you back to a familiar story. So you guys all remember the story of Jonah and the really big fish. Probably wasn't a whale because it was fresh water. So if ever says that, it doesn't say whale in the Bible. It says it was a big fish. But remember the story. So right, Jonah hears God say, I want you to go to Nineveh. He doesn't like Ninevites. They're not nice people. He says, I don't want to go to Nineveh because they might actually listen to me and turn towards God. And I don't want them to turn towards God because I want you to strike them all dead because I don't like them. So I'm not going to go. So he gets on a boat and he goes out in the, in the water and then there's a storm. And then the guys say, well... It's your fault, so they throw him over. He gets swallowed by a fish. He gets spit up on the beach. That's the quickest version of that story you're ever going to hear. And he's on the beach, and God says, 
by the way, I, I still want you to go to Nineveh. And so we pick up the story there, and so I'm just going to read it for you. You don't need to look it up. Jonah 3.3, 3, it says, This time Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a large city. It took three days to grow through it. In other words, to walk across the city, it took three days. Jonah began going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And I think he was smiling when he said that, by the way. And the Ninevites believed God. And a fast was proclaimed, all of them from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Hang on to that that phrase there. They put on sackcloth, which was, it meant something to them. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Or another word for dust could be ashes here. Some of your translations may actually say ashes. And this is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the kings and his nobles, do not let people, animals, herds, flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone who call urgently on God, let them give up their evil ways and violence. And who knows? Who knows? God may relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger that we will not perish. The king actually humbles himself. He actually models for us that, that thing of being meek or poor or humble. He actually, he actually puts himself in a position of humility. He stands up and he takes off his royal robe. And, and he takes off his robe as if to say, look, my earthly kingship, I am a powerful king. This is a powerful nation that this king is ruling over. He is a major world figure. And he takes off his robe and says, it doesn't matter. All of that worldly power that I have doesn't matter. So he takes off his robe and he puts on sackcloth, which is a picture of humility. It's, it's, it's putting on the, the least clothing that we could that, that, that means so little. And, and, he, and he sits down in the dust and he cries out for God's mercy. The king models something for all of us. And when the king does this, when he stands up and he takes off his his, his robe, and he puts on the sackcloth, and he sits in the, in the ashes. His behavior is not an aberration. It's very normal. You see, this is what people would do in the day when they responded to great sorrow, when they had great pain in their spirit, whether it was something bad had happened to the city or to them or to their family or there was a death or they realized that they were sinning somewhere or so even sometimes when someone else did something that was really sinful, they would stop and they would tear their clothes sometimes, but they would put on the sackcloth and they would sit in the ashes. So, so this is just part of how people expressed what was going on inwardly. There's something broken inside of me, so I'm going to, to, to show that to others and show that to God by humbling myself, putting on sackcloth, and sitting in the ashes. So sackcloth and ashes is synonymous with this outward expression of, of pain, sorrow, or brokenness, which we've talked about a little bit already. The beauty is the king knew that he needed God. He was desperate for God to show up. And if we want total freedom, that's where it starts. We have to know that we're desperate for God. Not just to get us to heaven. We are desperate for God to get us to heaven. The work of Jesus is what gets us there. We are desperate for God every day and every minute. And the more we recognize that, our desperation for God, the more freedom we walk in. The more we think we are self-sufficient or able to do this on our own, the less freedom we have. So the king, this evil king, this king of a bad place, 
actually models something for you and I. He humbles himself and puts on sackcloth and he sits in the ashes. Okay, now you understand the context of what it means to sackcloth and ashes. Let's go back to Isaiah 61 and picture this normative tradition of sackcloth and ashes and and see the the rich language that Isaiah writes. So just the second part of verse 2 going into verse 3, he says that I've come to comfort all who mourn, verse 3, and to provide to those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. God shows up, and he wipes the ashes from your head, and he places a crown of beauty on you. Don't miss this. God shows up. We don't clean ourselves up. We're in the ashes. The king is in the ashes. People are in the ashes. And he says, no, I'm going to enter into that mess. I'm going to come and meet you in the ashes, and I'm going to wipe your head clean, and I'm going to bestow on you a crown of beauty. Jesus says, I'm going to meet you in your discomfort. I'm going to show up in your pain. And the beauty is he doesn't just show up in our pain. He doesn't just bring comfort. He bestows on us a crown. Do you know that the scripture says that when you accepted Jesus, you became a son or a daughter of the Most High God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. You're his son. You're his daughter. You know what that makes you? It makes you royalty. It makes you a royal priesthood. And he says, when you come to me, I'm going to show up in the ashes and I'm going to place a crown on your head. Is that cool or what? I don't know if you guys uh, are all doing the, the Church Without Curtain study, if you remember, but um, Rebecca shared a great story with us last week. And I just want to remind you of what she said. She said, it's, it's not that God just lets me get the scraps from the table. I get to sit at the seat of honor. That God prepares a table before me. That God anoints my head with oil. God does all this because he wants to show you his furious love. He wants to show you, no, no, I, I love you. I love you beyond your wildest imagination. I want to set you free. I want you to see that I love you. So he meets us in the ashes. He wipes the ashes away, and he bestows on us this crown of beauty. Let's keep reading because it gets better. 61.3 still is, and then it says, and I will give you an oil of gladness instead of mourning. Whenever you see oil in the scriptures, more often than not, it's referring to the Holy Spirit. That God actually gives us his Holy Spirit, that he anoints us with with his Holy Spirit. And, and, And what happens is we have this crown on our heads and the Holy Spirit, and it gives us this this heart of, of celebration, of gladness, of joy, instead of the mourning that took us to that place of sitting in the ashes in our sackcloth. Keep reading, it says, I want to give you a garment of praise instead of despair. It's just really the same thing being said in two different ways. An oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise. Now remember, the garment of praise, the sackcloth, they'd put on the sackcloth. So he's using all that same imagery. I want to take the, the sackcloth us and I want to give you this garment of praise instead of despair. And the question I would ask you is how many of us still live with a spirit of despair? Despair over a child that we had and the choices they've made or despair over places where we've messed up or where we feel inadequate. Despair because we feel like we just don't measure up to other people. God says, no, I don't want you to be in despair. I want to take your despair and I want to give you this 
heart of praise. Jesus shows up, pulls us out of the ashes, gives us a crown on our heads, and anoints us with the Spirit, and wraps us with a garment of praise. He sets us free, and he gives us this heart of joy and heart of peace. I don't think I can say that enough. He sets us free, and he gives us a heart of praise. He sets us free, and he gives us a heart of praise. I don't know if all of you know this yet, and I don't want to uh, shock you, but um, our friend Mary Perry passed away this week. Uh, And you may not know Mary Perry, but you know of Mary Perry because she always sat right there, and she always praised exuberantly. And so you may not have known her. Um, I knew her, but Mary was was very um, expressive in her praise. But I knew Mary's story, and it was tragic. And she was abused, and she was hurt deeply, and she loved Jesus. And God gave her a spirit of praise. God removed her despair, and that woman praised Jesus. She had one of the most unique walks with God I have ever experienced in somebody. Her conversations with God were so real, so palatable. When she would talk about what God showed her and what God told her to do, this woman was was an example of this very thing, and she's gone to be with the Lord, and I know she is having a great conversation with him. But God removed her spirit of despair and gave her a garment of praise. But the question is, why does God do it? Why does God do all this? Why does he send his son to to die for us? Why does he go to such lengths to set us free? Why is he so consumed with giving us life and freedom, and not just life, but abundant life? The reality is, God is a triune God. God exists in community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is perfect community, there is perfect love. And God desired to share that perfect love with us. And we were created to share in the Trinitarian love. We were created to be pulled into and a part of that amazing community and that amazing love that exists between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But sin separated us from that. And Jesus came to usher in the year of reconciliation so that we, again, can be a part. We can commune with God and experience the Trinity in our own lives and experience love in such a profound and powerful way. Look at the passage in Isaiah. Isaiah says in the the last part of verse 3, he says, And they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. He does this so that we will be oaks of righteousness. Not just any tree, but oaks. Oaks in the scripture, when you see the word oaks, they they represent power and strength. They represent trees that lasted for a long, long time. Some of the the oaks of that day are are still there. They're hundreds and hundreds of years old. There's this picture of of just stability and and power in in, in the imagery of an oak. If you read in Psalms 1 or Jeremiah 17, he talks of, a, of both places of a tree that's planted with deep roots. Oaks have deep roots. That's why they can stand up to storms and, and strong winds. But it talks of these trees that are deep roots, and it says that even in times of drought, even in times of difficulty, these trees still bear fruit. 
there's this picture of, of us becoming strong in our faith, courageous in our faith, holding strong to the truth of what God has. And he says, I do all this to display my splendor. It says, for the display of my splendor. Another way you could say that is to the glory of God. God makes us oaks of righteousness to bring glory to himself. God makes us oaks of righteousness so that others will see who God is. This is our witness. Now, here's what I want you to know. When you walk in the freedom that God has given you, other people see that, and it makes this God of the universe attractive to them because we all want freedom in our lives. But the opposite of that is true as well. If you refuse to receive the freedom God has for you, then you limit your ability to make God known. Now, God can make himself known, but he's calling us to be oaks of righteousness as a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. The image of Auschwitz haunts me because the men walk back into the barracks. We have to be a church that proclaims freedom. We have to be a church that, that helps people to understand that God came to give you total and absolute freedom. We have to take hold in every way to the freedom that God has given us. The question was asked when I was talking about this earlier in the week, like, what do we do? What do you want people to do? You know, I don't think it's as complicated as we make it. I love the image that Frankel puts out, and the guy's walking out of the barracks, leaving the gates, and he just says, we had, we, we had to pick flowers. We had to hold the flowers in our hands and begin to live into the freedom that we have. I think the picture that we need to hold on to is beginning to walk in the freedom, to know that God has set you free and refuse to turn around and walk back into the barracks, walk out of the gates and begin to live into the freedom that God has given you. To be willing to even recognize those places where you are still in bondage and say, God, I don't know what to do with this, but I know you want to bring light into it. You know what the scripture says? When light comes, darkness flees. When God sets you free, you're free indeed. And we need to learn to walk in the freedom that God has for us, to leave the gates and not look back. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful for the imagery of this passage. And Lord, I pray that we would be a church that experiences your freedom. I pray that we would walk in the freedom that you have made available to us. I pray that we would be willing to bring our brokenness to you, that we would not be self-reliant, that we would not try to work our way out of, out of the feelings that we have of inadequacy, but we would give them back to you and that we would walk in total and absolute freedom. But I'm so grateful for the Spirit of God that you give to us, that you anoint us with your Spirit, that you wrap us in a garment of praise. Help us to have praise on our lips, as Norfled has taught us. Help us to have a song in our heart that ushers in your freedom. Lord, I know even as I stand here and pray, there are people who do not feel free in this room. There are people in this room whose hearts are broken because they've experienced deep loss in the last few weeks and few months. Lord, I pray that, that, that you would enter into that, that you would pull them from the ashes, that you would give them a crown of beauty, that you would wrap them with a garment of praise. Lord, even as we 
conclude this service, I pray that people would know that they can come down, that we will pray with them, we will pray for them. Lord, may we walk in the freedom that you've given us. May we have hearts of celebration. Thank you for your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.